Are you ready to realize the true potential in your life and help others do the same? Get equipped to create a thriving future with the Secrets of Success podcast. Inspire others to live, lead, and work on purpose. And experience the joy of watching satisfaction and productivity come to life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, this week's episode is just awesome. A, a colleague that I met a few years ago at an awards banquet where this individual came first as the number one leadership provider globally and CRG came third. And Dr. Lance is our guest, Secretan, who has written a new book called The Bellwether Effect. Now, he's now written 23 books. He is a contrarian, meaning a lot of the things that we're doing out there in terms of leadership, both personally and professionally, is not working. And he basically said that leadership is broken. Why is it broken? Well, he answers that in this show. You know, things like performance reviews, and if you're an HR professional, why you should never do that ever again. And some other items that are very, very powerful. So join me in this episode where Lance and I uh, go deep into all his work. I mean, he has over 40 years of work in this space of leadership and organizational development and one of the number one consultants globally. And so we're privileged to have him on the show. Now, a reminder, a lot of the things that we do here in CRG, Lance is talking about where you get clear about your direction, your destiny, where you're going is so important. And are you clear about that? And that's one of the things that we do with our tools around the values or personal style or your leadership skill or your wellness levels, whatever it is, and that developing the whole person is not an option. And Lance will get into that in this episode. So look forward. Hang on. It's awesome. Lance is just great. Hang on to this episode or onto your seats, pardon me, as you listen to this episode from Dr. Lance Secretan, the author of The Bellwether Effect. Well, each week... We want to share with you guest insights, strategies, thoughts to improve your life, both personally and professionally. And today is no exception. I am uh, honored to call this person a colleague. We actually were on the stage together uh, a few years ago where this individual was being rated and ranked the number one leadership provider by Lead 500 Awards back then, and CRG came third in that same award. So welcome, Dr. Lance Secretan. Lance, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ken. Good to be here. Now, Lance, you've written 22 books, and we'll get into some of the content of that here pretty quick. But one of the things that we like to do on The Secrets of Success is to get to have the listeners get to know your journey. I mean, you're an expert in the leadership and development space globally, you know, one of the top providers out there and thought leaders. But before we get into that, you know, where did Lance come from? Where were you born and what was some of your journey before you got into this space? Well, uh, it's been a long journey. Um, I was born originally in England, left when I was eight, lived in the Argentine for a while. My dad worked uh, in the technology world back in those days. And uh, then I came to Canada when I was a teenager, and I've been a Canadian citizen ever since. I live half the year in Canada, half in Colorado, where I have a home because I'm a passionate skier. I worked for a number of Canadian companies and then went to England, where 
I was the CEO of Manpower, which is a very large temporary staffing company, and we built that business from scratch to 72,000 employees, and then I retired at 40. I went to teach well, at the just, university. Sorry, Lance, sorry, let's just stop, stop there for a second. From scratch to 32,000 employees. 72,000. How does that happen? Well, 14 years of wonderful, inspiring work and great team, and we built it uh, over the, those years, and it was a roaring success. It was actually the subject of one of my early books called Manager of Moxie, which is the story of how we built the company. Oh, awesome. Uh, say that uh, book name again. You just cut out there for a bit. Managerial Moxie. Okay, Managerial Moxie. Okay, so those that are listening, if you want to learn how Lance built that company that size that quickly, and then you can go to that. So sorry to interrupt, and so then you went and did? And then uh, I retired. I went to teach at the university. I didn't like the books I was being given to work from, so I wrote my own, and uh, that was a bestseller, and as a result of that, I was being called by companies to come and work with them, and then I found I couldn't really teach and carry my load. But also, I had 60 students in my class, then I had uh, next semester, I think I had 100 and some, and then the next semester I had 400, and I had two roomfuls of students uh, with a closed-circuit TV. And eventually, the faculty management fired me because the faculty were meeting and asking uh, a critical question, which is, who is this guy who is draining all our students out of our classes? We need to get rid of him. So uh, they did basically. And so I became a full-time consultant, advisor, and coach leaders, and that's been my life ever since. Now, uh, th and congratulations on all that success. Now, let's just go back to this because uh, my family or my wife works in a university setting. What is, what is with that, that you are so successful that I need to fire you? <laughs> well, uh, I have to be guarded in what I say here, but let's, let's put it this way. Um, the university is the last place for cutting-edge thinking to happen. Cutting-edge thinking happens in garages and entrepreneurial startups and research labs and so on, uh, and some universities like MIT and others. But generally speaking, the university system is really tired. It's not very creative. It doesn't reward uh, bravery and courage and cutting-edge thinking. It rewards systematic thinking and it's very bureaucratic so it runs according bureaucratic to mm. bureaucratic rules and now i have two uh, uh children who are just finishing their university so what does that do to us for parents to say okay are they they're getting an education on innovation or not so by the way lance i'm with you i know you're uh, just being careful and cautious in how you say it but there's many examples where the last place that you're going to find innovation is through uh, higher education. So thank you well, for that. Yeah, and actually some of the most extraordinary leaders of our time uh, never went to university. Uh, Bill Gates, for example, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, well they both went to university but they didn't finish, and uh, many others. So I think that the, the issue, I've, I'm thinking about this quite a lot these days because I graduated from USC, uh, you know, I've got loads of degrees, so I'm really talking uh, against myself here, but I, I, did, I graduated from USC, 
from graduate school. I also got a PhD from the London School of Economics. And I've noticed that whenever I tell people about my education, which is not often these days, if I say I went to USC and the London School of Economics, they never ask me what I studied because those schools carry the cachet necessary and that's all you need to say. It's kind of like saying I started at Princeton and Harvard. I mean, nobody asks mm -hmm. you what did you study. They're more interested in where did you study. And if you say that you got a PhD in rocket science from the uh, uh, lower Slumbovia basket weaving university, they wouldn't be interested in you. Mm. Mm. Isn't it interesting so that you get the status, but not necessarily, um, I'll call it validity of thought or value of thought. Uh, right. where we all have that compliance that goes with it. Well, thank you, Lance, for that. So here you are, and it's quite amazing, retire at 40, move through these different areas, and you start moving into being a consultant. What drove you towards that? What was really the underlying motivation for you to go from being a leader of a company to help leaders of companies? Well, I quickly realized when I was at university that the university world of teaching especially in the field that I was involved in, which is strategy and leadership and entrepreneurship. Even then, they were using texts that were 20 and 30 years old. And I came to realize that they actually didn't know much about the subject, which I had been actually practicing for 14 years before that. So it looked like nothing like the experience that I'd had. In other words, the theory was so far apart from the practice that it was ridiculous. So when I wrote the book, what happened was that uh, the demand from people saying, oh, come and share those ideas with us, grew. And that basically pulled me into that business. I would never have really thought about it. I hoped I would live for the rest of my life in the university system because I love teaching. But mm. uh, it didn't turn out that way. Yeah, I mean, I get to teach at universities and the young minds are awesome in spite of what many people say. Just a lot of times it's the institution around it that does, does them a bit of a disservice. Well, well congratulations. I don't think, I don't think we, we don't need to worry about the young minds. It's the old minds we need to worry about. <laughs> uh, agreed, agreed. A little stuck, a little stayed, a little protective sometimes uh, with yeah. that. So with that, Lance, one of the things, one of the reasons I also wanted to have you on the show because I... You know, we've met personally, and everybody here, Lance is, uh, you know, who you hear on the phone or on this show, pardon me, is also who you meet in person. So thank you for being kind and gentle and approachable in all the times that we have met. Uh, but you've written a, a brand new book called The Bellwether Effect, uh, Stop Following, Start Inspiring. And a lot of the things that are standard in business, standard in leadership, standard in how people are doing um, business from an HR, from a leadership point of view, you just kind of say, well, hey, that's old, that's tired, that doesn't work. Where was the sort of inspiration for you to write this book, The Bellwether Effect? Well, I've written a lot of books about leadership, and I've been a student of leadership. And quite honestly, of the 22 books I've written, I hope you never, ever see 15 of them or more. Uh, I'm proud of maybe three or four or five of the books I've written. And what I've learned over the years, and it's been an evolving journey, is that we're trying to create inspiring organizations. But there are things that get in the way. And those things are demoralizing demotivating, and so on. So I'll give you a summary here. When I make a speech, and perhaps you've heard me say this, I ask the audience, how many people do you think would give up their careers if they had a free choice? And I start this kind of like an auction. And I say, well, mm -hmm. do you think it would be 
And the audience says, no, it's 60. And then they say 70. And then somebody says 80. And that's, Ken, where we always end up. 80% of people would give up their careers if they had a free choice. In other words, they don't want to go to work. And here we are, we've spent $170 billion a year on leadership development. We have 200,000 books on Amazon.com about leadership, and leadership's broken everywhere, where you're, whether you're talking Wall Street, whether you're talking uh, Ottawa, or whether you're talking Washington, whether you're talking the Roman Catholic Church, whether you're talking police, you're talking politics, it really doesn't matter. It's broken. And the reason it's broken, one of the main reasons, is because we're doing things that make it broken. And if I give you one example of that, it would be, for instance, the performance appraisal. The performance appraisal is one of those things that's the most reviled activity in business today. Nobody likes doing them and nobody wants them done to them. And yet 80% of companies do them. And I like to apply this little test, which is the would you do this with your spouse test. So would you do a performance appraisal with your spouse? Would you sit down with your spouse and say, hi, honey, it's that time of year again. We're going to have a little conversation about your key performance indicators, your budget. We're going to do a 360 survey to see how your colleagues think of you. And we're going to map out some goals for you for the next year. I mean, you wouldn't even begin that conversation or you'd be looking for a lawyer. <laughs> so why would we do it at, at, at work if it's unacceptable at home. It's unacceptable because it's demeaning, it's, it's reductionist, it's critical and judgmental, it's totally uninspiring. Therefore, we shouldn't do it anywhere. There are better and different ways of doing this. So let me just stop you for a second, Lance. I mean, uh, I'm familiar with the HR certificates and all these ones. Up. In fact, many of the certificates have this component around how to do performance appraisals. Why is it still out there? If it is so broken, why are people still doing it? Because I think that human resource professionals in many ways need to justify their existence. And they do it typically with processes. So engagement surveys would be another example. We invented engagement surveys 40 years ago. Gallup is the granddaddy of those. Mm -hmm. And roughly, as you probably know, the statistics show that roughly uh, – about 26% uh, of employees are engaged and 75% or either or 74% are disengaged or actively disengaged. This means that if you were a rowing eight, that three people would be doing all the work, four people would be looking around at the scenery and one person would be trying to sink the boat. Now, this is no way to run a company. So mm. this is the kind of condition we're in right now. Why do we keep doing that? Well, human resource professionals have two big tools at their disposal, the performance appraisal system, which ranks people and so on, and the engagement survey, which ranks the theoretical level of engagement of employees. I mean, to start with, we're starting in the wrong place because I don't, if I was starting a company, I would not want engaged employees. I want inspired employees. I want something much better than engaged. Mm. So let's go to that. And, you know, we'll bounce around and we're just going to allow the organic floor to a, a flow to occur here, Lance, is what's the difference from engaged to inspired? Well, let's start in this place. What's the difference between motivation and inspiration? So motivation is essentially <clears throat> a fear-based system where we are offering incentives, bribes, or punishment in order to achieve a certain kind of outcome or behavior. So we use this kind of system everywhere. It's fear-based, and it's about me. 
It's not about you. It's about me. So in politics, vote for me or the bad guys will get you. In religion, join my religion or you'll go to hell. In business, do what I say or I'll fire you. In academia, do pass the exam or I'll fail you. In healthcare, follow this protocol or you'll get sick. In marketing, buy this product or you'll be ugly. And so it goes. And so we've learned this system of cause and effect, fear-based motivation, and we think that we can get outcomes to occur this way, two-for-one deals in the store and so on. But in reality, this is a short-term approach, and it doesn't work in most situations. So what really works is an entirely different thing, which is inspiration. Now we tend to mix up those two words. We say, I want to be motivated and inspired, but actually they're quite different. Inspiration is not about me. It's about you. Inspiration is lighting a fire within you. Motivation is lighting a fire under you. And anybody who's had a great coach or a great mentor in their lives has had someone in their lives who's inspiring. Now, the thing about it is that we will do anything for an inspired person. We tend to teach a lot of technical stuff in businesses like key competencies and leadership competencies and so on. But in reality, if people are inspired, put six people together who are totally inspired by you and what they're doing, and they'll find all the tools they need because they're aggressive and hungry and ambitious and passionate and in love with what's going on, and they'll make it up. That's what little startups and garages do every day. Yes, they bumble around and they bang into things and they make mistakes. That's a small price to pay for the outrageous success of so many of these organizations. They don't know diddly squat about leadership competencies, and they don't need to. So human resource professionals tend to spend a lot of time in these technical and process areas, when in reality, what we really want to do is find the level of inspiration. And just to summarize on that point, we do everything in life, either because we're inspired to do it, or we stop doing it because we're uninspired. We go to mm. movies that inspire us. We eat in restaurants that inspire us. We fall in love with people that inspire us. We join companies that inspire us. And when these things no longer inspire us, we leave them. And we're uninspired and we walk away. So the key to leadership is connecting with others in a way that inspires them. So how might I do that? So I agree with you, by the way, you know, as a company that focuses on leadership development and in this space and the last my last book on the quest for purpose was I actually have a definition of the difference between motivation and inspiration so we're a hundred percent congruent on that how do I tap into if I'm unfamiliar with this territory how do I start to get into this inspiration space with myself and with others on my team well by the I way can I... this, sorry sorry to interrupt by the way does this apply to personal life too oh yes of course it's all one there isn't any distinction. Okay. That's another okay. illusion, and it's one of the eight bellwether effects that I write about in the book, the idea of separateness. We've created this illusion of separate departments and separate functions and titles and hierarchies and salaries and companies. This is just not real. Well, how do we become inspired? Well, there are three big ways, and I would draw your listeners to a book I wrote called The Spark, The Flame, and The Torch. So the spark is becoming inspired ourselves. The flame is inspiring others once we're inspired. And you can't inspire others until your tank is full. And then lastly, the torch, which is inspiring the world. So to answer your question, the spark, how do we become inspired? 
we become inspired by first of all having a dream. That's one of the eight bellwether effects also. Throw away the mission, vision, and value statement. They're really tired and replace it with a dream. There's a whole process for how to create a dream, but great organizations got there by creating a dream. Starbucks' dream is to create the third place. That's how they powered their organization. Humana, a major client of ours, has a dream to help people achieve lifelong well-being. That's mm. all. They don't have vision, mission, and value statements. They just have one singular, unique, and powerful and passionate dream. Microsoft, another great client of ours, originally had a mission statement to have a PC on every desk, which is a pathetic statement when you think about it. It's all about me. And so what happens when everybody has a PC on their desk? Then what? But uh, their dream, which they've replaced that with now, is to empower every individual and every organization to achieve more. You see how the shift is away from me to put mm. PCs on my desk or on everybody's desk to you helping you achieve more. Now, that can happen endlessly, right? You can help people achieve more today, but tomorrow they want to achieve more. So the role of Microsoft is to achieve more. Since Satya Nadella has been the chief executive of that company, he's added nearly $300 billion worth of value to the organization, and the dream is a big part of that. Mm. Well, let's just stop for a second, Lance, because um, you have so much richness, and you've been in this... Um, I'll call it space or area for so many years now. Help us understand. I don't want to skip over. And by the way, I have your other book behind me here, Spark of Flame and the Torch. Is let's just back up for a second because this mission statement, vision statement, and one dream. Just let's just delve into that a little bit more. What's the difference? What? Because well, that's that's a standard uh, thing in HR departments and leadership teams as well. Absolutely, and. Uh, have you ever seen people roll their eyes uh, when they hear the mission statement or uh, even worse, ask people what their mission statement is? Most people can't even tell you. How can you meet a mission statement when you don't even know what it is? Mm. And the reason they don't know what it is is because it's boring and uninteresting and pretty well the same as everybody else's. So we hire consultants. They come in. They build a mission statement for us. Now, Dilbert had a really good idea because what Dilbert did, he had three columns of words, and you just mixed and matched them, and you can actually Google that. It's sort of like a mission statement builder. And even Franklin Covey, the Covey organization, does that mm -hmm. today. And, you know, this is a really lame approach to trying to organize the ultimate higher purpose of what our organization is trying to achieve. It should be exciting and passionate. It should be something that people jump out of bed in the morning and say, I've got a dream. I'm going to work for a company that has a dream. That's what gets me up in the morning. That's what fires my, mm. my afterburners. That's what I want to do with my life. This is why I am inspired. When you think about, you, you have uh, registered or trademarked a system called One Dream, correct? Right, right. And so what is, just share with us a couple of steps in there that your clients would go through or the people you work with would go through to start really having this uh, come together for them. The first step is to create what we call permission space. What will all the constituents of your business give you permission for. Now, a constituent is anyone who influences your business, not just employees and customers, but regulators, unions, the press, uh, people who don't even work for you, competitors, people on the street, people who know your name but aren't necessarily customers, but they talk about you. So who are the people that you depend on for your future success and what will they give you permission to do? 
Once you know what that permission step is, space is, that's step one, then you can create your dream based on the permission space. In other words, only follow that energy that the, the constituents will give you. And then lastly, you need a, a system of follow-up. So we work with a software company that developed one of my ex-clients who developed a software program, very, very effective, where you identify all the things you need to do to achieve the dream, all the things you need to stop doing to achieve the dream, and all the things that you are already doing but you need to do more of to, to achieve the dream. Put those 500 different moving parts into a hopper and then create a dashboard. So every day what's happening is you're actually watching the needles move on every one of those 500 items to see if you're progressing towards the achievement of your dream. So those are the three steps. Now, I've skimmed through that very fast, but you can see it's a big mm. deal and involves a lot of work. Uh, but actually, it's a lot simpler than it, than it sounds, but it's very uh, time-sensitive and uh, it takes a lot of energy and effort because what happens with so many of these things, including mission statements, is we lose our enthusiasm and we get wandering off to the next shiny object. And so it just loses its steam. The dream needs to have lots of energy behind it all of the time. Mm, mm. Thank you for that. So we were starting with the spark. Then you were going into and moving, and I interrupted you there to delve deep. So thank you for that, Lance. That was awesome. Is the flame. Well, the spark, though, has three steps. So the first is to create a dream. The second is to create inspiring relationships. And the Explain. third, and I haven't got them necessarily in the right order, is to, at a personal level, understand your destiny, character, and calling. We call this the why be do because it answers three big questions on a personal level, not a company level, on a personal level. Why are you here? What's the point of your life? Mm -hmm. At the end of it, what will you be saying you did? If God, God calls you into the boardroom uh, in heaven and says, so how did you do over the last hundred years? What will your answer be? And will it be that you helped in some way to make the world a better place? That's the level at which a destiny statement gets written. And then secondly, inside there is a character statement. So how do you want to be known? What are the values that you stand for? How do you want people to describe you? If I'm talking to somebody, Ken, and I ask them, oh, tell me about Ken. What kind of a guy is he? What would you like them to be saying about you? Mm. And lastly, the calling. What are your gifts and talents? And how are you going to use those to serve the world? And I can't tell you how many people in the world that I've bumped into are simply not following their calling. Now, how can you be passionate about something that you're not in love with? So to identify destiny, character, and calling are three big steps that we take with all of our clients. We take all the employees through that process of identifying their why we do, and then building inspiring relationships, and then creating a dream for the company. Mm, mm. Now, if and you fill up those three pieces, mm. you end up with very inspired people. Well, just to affirm in everything you're doing there, Lance, is that, I mean, that's one of the steps that we do here as well, is you can't have an inspired team if the individuals on the team are not inspired themselves. Correct. So those pieces. So just a reminder of all of you that are listening, uh, if you own a business or yourself, is one of the number one places you need to work on is yourself first. And it's pretty hard to, we make a statement in our development programs, Lance, is that my ability to serve others is equal to or less than our own development. So mm -hmm. if I haven't got my destiny clear, it's very difficult to help others in, in confirming theirs.
Absolutely. And then we have a statement in in our business when we're teaching people that we certify to teach our work, we ask them this question, what are you teaching when you're not speaking? Because what we're actually teaching is not what we know. We're teaching who we are. Mm, Explain the difference. Well, the difference is that I can tell you, for instance, to tell the truth and then not be a truth teller myself. And so if somebody sees that, then they would say, this is inauthentic and it devalues what you're teaching. Mm. If I give you an example, if the Dalai Lama walked into a room that we were in and sat in the corner for 15 minutes and said nothing, just behind all of us, you're not attached to us, we'd know he was there. And then he walks out of the room after 15 minutes, we would be inspired because we know what he stands for. We know his destiny. We know why he's here on the planet. We know how Mm -hmm. he wants to be known, what his values are, and we know what his calling is. And it's inspiring when we see that. Anyone who knows their destiny, character, and calling and articulates it and makes it clear to other people is an inspiring person. My destiny, character, and calling statements are on my business card. So when I hand it out to my clients, they see my email address and all that stuff on one side, but if they flip the card over, they'll see... What's the dream of my company? What's the why we do, my destiny, character, and calling? And what are the uh, uh, other details about me that tell you who I am, not what I know? Mm, mm, thank you for that. And why don't you share with the uh, audience what those are for you? My destiny uh, statement is to help create a more inspiring and loving world. And you can see that I don't need to look this up. It's in my DNA. I live this every day, Mm. unlike a mission statement. This is how I am. My character statement is to be a loving and inspiring person. And my, my calling is to inspire and lead through my teaching, writing, and speaking. Now, if you go to our website, which is secretan.com, and type in YBDo, you'll see a forum there where people, hundreds and hundreds of people have posted their YBDo statements. So if you're interested in creating your own YBDo statement, you can plunder all the many uh, previous people that have been before you and have mm. created theirs. And that's the purpose of it, so that it's kind of like a gold mine. You can get all kinds of creative ideas from it. Oh, Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, uh, Lance, for that. So uh, anything else around the spark side of things? Well, no, those three, I mean, we could go on forever, couldn't we, about what does it take to become more inspiring? But those are the three biggies, I think, that make a really big difference. Mm, mm, uh, Much appreciated. Thank you for that. So now the flame. The flame is now we're inspired. Our tank is full. So now we're going to inspire other people. And we do that by following something we call the Castle Principles. Now, the Castle Principles are the result of some research we did to find out from people, what do you not like about leaders? Now, notice that this is a negative question. What do you mm-hmm. not like about leaders? Well, they, they told us we don't like cowards. We don't like people who are phony. We don't like people who are selfish. We don't like people who lie. We don't like people who uh, rule with fear, and we don't like idiots. So we took those and said, well, then let's, let's just reverse those. And the reverse of those is courage, authenticity, service, truthfulness, love, and effectiveness. 
And that is an acronym for CASTLE, C-A-S-T-L-E. And so if we live those CASTLE principles, we will become inspiring leaders because people love courageous leaders, authentic leaders, leaders who serve, leaders who tell the truth, leaders who are loving, and leaders who are effective. Mm. It makes complete sense, and I see that in the work that we're doing. So let's go back to the beginning where we said leadership is broken. These make common sense. It makes sense. Why are leaders not doing things like being authentic? I think we're stuck uh, in many ways. The last chapter of the bellwether effect is called why we don't change, why it's so difficult to change. And I go into the detail of that quite heavily because as I start the chapter by saying, I'm pretty sure you're going to get through this book and then you're going to say, well, this is nice, but I'm not sure I'm going to be pulling all this into my organization. It's probably better for others, but I don't want to be telling everybody I love them. I don't want to ditch the performance appraisal or the engagement surveys, which we've been running for 30 years now. I don't want to uh, understand the concept of oneness instead of separateness. I don't want to remove fear from the workplace. I don't want to replace mission statement with a dream, etc. So all of these things will meet resistance, which is why, by the way, Ken, this book is short, but it has the most footnotes and research of any book I've ever written, 70 footnotes. And it's been endorsed more heavily by more heavy hitters Mm -hmm. than any book I've ever written before. So I did that because I know there's going to be pushback from a lot of leaders on these subjects. And I know that because we're hardwired not to change. That's, the, that's, a, that's actually what protects us as human beings. Homeostasis is a very important part of who we are as a physical species. But it doesn't help us when we're trying to learn new things. Mm. So the chapter really is dedicated to why can't we change? If I just give you one example, there is an animal I call a copy frog. Now, it's, it's an animal that's derived from two different animals. One is the is the boiling frog. You've heard the story, haven't you, about how if you put a frog into a cold pot of water and heat it up, it will die because it doesn't notice the water getting hotter and and, and simply it will expire. If you put a a frog in a hot pan of water, it'll jump out because it immediately is scalded and so on. Now, this is actually biologically a myth. It's not actually scientifically accurate at all or even true, but it's an interesting metaphor. Mm-hmm. Now, if you take another animal, which is the copycat, this is the person that copies other people. Now, merge these two together, and you have a copy frog. Now, a copy frog is a person who doesn't see how things are changing and copies everybody else. So let me give you an example. You're sitting in a meeting. Somebody comes up with some uh, goofy idea about a strategic direction the company wants to make, and you're thinking, this is ridiculous. This will never work. But you don't say anything. So you're a frog and you look at everybody else and they're not saying anything. So you're a copycat. So you're a copy frog. So what's happening is this strategy gets approved, even though the majority of people in the meeting think it's goofy and won't work, but nobody says anything because they're all copying each other. That's why we don't change. That's just one of the four reasons I outline in the book about why we're so slow and why we find it so difficult to change. Uh, Hence the very first acronym courage. As part yes. of Castle, is I need yes. to stand up, I need to speak out. Um, again, a lot of people don't, and 
what what where is the the sort of baseline of courage? Why is there a lack of courage in many people? Well, for often for a lot of people, they don't see the payoff. So I've talked to CEOs, perhaps you have too, who said, you know, I don't want to change. I'm going to be gone in five years, and this mm. is not really going to be on my agenda at that, at that time. So why do I need to do this? Everything's running fine. I'll just leave it alone. I don't want to be the disruptor here. And then, you know, it'll probably be a big bumpy ride as we do the change, and I'll be gone when all the benefits happen. So it's not worth my while. Mm. Mm. There's so many stories that uh, where we could go back in time and look at these large corporations that many that were on the Fortune 500 are no longer there because of that exact right. reason uh, right. for it. So anything right. else around the flame side uh, that you can add and deepen our understanding lens? Well, I think the council principles are a, a, a universal approach. So we can raise kids this way, right? We can be great partners to our spouses by being courageous, authentic, serving the other telling the truth, being loving, and being effective. We should raise our kids with this code as well. Mm. Because I often say to people, every team I work with, every single team without exception, has a level of dysfunctionality in them. Mm. Some it's extreme, some it's minor, but it's always there. Where does it come from? It comes from years earlier, usually from school years. So leadership, dysfunctionality in organizations has its roots in our education system. And where we should be then is in the schools teaching concepts of leadership so that we are growing great leaders. We don't do that. We don't do that anywhere. So it's even in the university system, we don't teach great leaders. So it's a, it's a discouraging situation. So it's up to folks like you and I can to sit down and work with leaders and say, let's unwind this stuff that you've been taught because it's ineffective and there are much better ways to do this. So using the castle principles is a great way to, to do, make that journey because if we're able to do that, we'll get to be inspiring and therefore inspire others. Mm. Thank you, Lance, for that. And then finally, you were talking about the torch in taking this further in expanding our impact. Right. So here we're making an impact on the world. And we do that really through two big, big ways in the corporate world. One, by uh, coaching, and uh, second, by leadership training and development. Those two, that's the heart of your work and, and mine also, they're really the big differentiators. If we can do an effective job of coaching and teaching leaders how to be better leaders, then we're going to change the world. And we do this by following something, in, at least in my uh, lexicon here, something we invented called uh, value-centered leadership. And value-centered leadership works like this. There are three things we do in the world, only three, mastery, chemistry, and delivery. There's nothing you do in life, at work or at home, that doesn't fit under one of those three headings. Okay. Mastery is, identif is, is identifying whatever it is you do and it, doing it to the highest levels of which you're capable. Chemistry is relating so well with others that they actively seek to associate themselves with you. And that language is very carefully chosen. So it's not whether you think you're a lovely person. It's whether other people feel that way and they're drawn to you. So if you leave your mm -hmm. company, will others say, hey, I love working with you. I'm going to follow you wherever you go. That's mm -hmm. chemistry. And, or a spouse who says, I don't care where you go. I'll follow you till the end of the earth. That's chemistry. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, delivery. Delivery is identifying the needs of others and meeting them. 
That covers everything we do in life, whether it's parenting, spousing, leading, following, doesn't matter. So then there are, those are called primary values, those three, mastery, chemistry, and delivery. But you can't just wake up in the morning and turn a switch and make it all happen. So you have to do something that gets you there. And these are called accelerators. So the accelerator for mastery is called learning. The more you learn, the greater the mastery. For the chemistry, the accelerator is empathizing. The more you empathize with other people, the more powerful your chemistry will be. And delivery, identifying the needs of others, the more you listen to people, the more you'll understand their needs and therefore the better you'll be able to meet them. So we use these six very simple words, but they're very powerful. So for example, instead of a performance appraisal, we should talk to each other about how's our level of mastery these days and what's our level of learning. Let me give you an example. Supposing our mastery is, shall we say, a seven and our level of learning is, shall we say, a six. Now, if you subtract the bigger number from the smaller one, those subtract seven from six, you end up with minus one. We call that a vector, a vector of minus one. A vector of minus one is saying there's not enough learning going on to keep that level of mastery sustained you are going to decline in mastery because you're not investing enough learning. And in particular, your mastery will never grow because there's not enough mass learning going on. You need a positive vector for that to happen. So in other words, you need a mastery level of seven and a learning level of eight. Now you have a positive vector of one, which means there's more learning going on than the current level of mastery, which will lead to future growth in mastery. So now every problem we deal with and everything we talk about with each other on our going ongoing basis is easily dealt with with the vector. So I could say to you, Ken, uh, how are you doing today? And you say, well, I'm having a really tough time with a customer. Oh, what kind of a problem is this? Is it a mastery problem? Like we're not very good at what we do? Is it a chemistry problem? The customer doesn't like us? Or is it a delivery problem? We're not meeting the customer's need. Let's talk about which one it is. Well, it's a delivery problem. Okay, now notice we've removed two items so we don't have to talk about them, mm -hmm. mastery and chemistry. All we now need to talk about is delivery. So now we can say, well, is the customer hearing us? Are we listening well enough? To whom are we listening? Are we listening to the right people? Do we listen, need to listen more? Is there something we're not hearing properly? So there are lots of very constructive combinations of questions here. Now. We can do this every five minutes or every 15 minutes or five times a day or once a week or whatever. We don't have to wait six months for a performance appraisal. And actually mm -hmm. a performance appraisal, which is typically six months or even annually, is really quaint in an age when we, if we don't get a response to a text in six seconds, we're really ticked off. So to wait six months for feedback is ridiculous. So an ongoing conversation around these, the, ve the vector and value center leadership at home and at work is extraordinarily powerful. Mm. Uh, I can't say enough about that simplicity, Lance, that you've created there around mastery, chemistry, and delivery so that we can actually do something about it. I mean, all the research is clear. It's feedback, if you want to call that, based on a real-life situation soon after it occurs is the number one contributor to shifting people's behaviors. Versus right. something where, you know, three weeks from now, I don't even remember the, uh, in, the interaction with that customer or with that employee or with that person. It's already exactly. gone. I've on, moved on exactly. to something else. So right. now I, 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 I want to come to two things and then we have to wrap up in about five to seven minutes, Lance. And I want to uh, back off. So the two things is that you also 
have this skiing where you teach people how to ski black diamond runs in a very short period of time. And I want to back off to that and save that last for the show. However, before that, and we teach this as well, you have a whole person model where you want to develop the whole person. And, you know, a lot of times in today's business, and it's probably more true in North America or maybe Asia uh, than other places where, you know, my career consumes me or et cetera. Just explain your whole person model and why uh, all those components are important to you and to everybody listening here to be successful in life. Well, you know, I think that um, the illusion of separateness, that things are unlinked, is an epidemic of our time. Uh, I'll tell you a story about this. I had a coaching client in the U.S. who was a truly brilliant guy. He he was an MD, a physician, a Harvard researcher, had started three companies, sold them all for over $100 million each. He had plenty of money. He was starting a fourth company, and he asked me to be his coach. So I coached him for a while, and after a little while, I realized he had three big things going on in his life. One was he hadn't filed his tax returns for five years. A second was that he was living with a woman that he couldn't stand and didn't know how to and didn't have the courage to ask her to leave or leave himself. And thirdly, uh, he was in a situation where he had a daughter who was a codependent and perennially Uh, drug addicted and in rehab. Mm. So I said to him, you know, we need to talk about these three things because you can't be an effective leader if you're bringing this stuff to work every day. And he said, I didn't hire you to talk about those things. I I hired you to help me be a more effective leader. And I said, but that will help you to be a more effective leader. And he said, fine, but I don't want to talk about those things. And I said, well, then maybe we're not going to be able to work together because until you get those things fixed, you're not going to be able to concentrate and give every ounce of your energy and passion to this new startup, which was truly a brilliant idea that he had. So I don't know where it stands now, but we're not working together anymore. But this is an example of how we separate things and think they're separate. So the whole human model, you know, if I have a fight with my wife and then I come to work, it's going to show. There's no way I can avoid this. If I have sleepless nights because I'm not feeling well and I'm under stress and I have, uh, I'm overweight or I'm diabetic or whatever, I can't perform at my highest level. We are corporate athletes. We mm. train to be physically fit, strong, and at our very best. That's what we need in order to survive and thrive in the modern work environment. If you're abusing your body, you're not going to be able to do that. So the whole human model is 11 moving parts, and they all need to work together, and they all function together like a bunch of gears. You touch one, all the others change as well. Mm. And uh, we're on the same page on that, and thank you for that. And so many times... People said, well, I don't, want, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. That really has nothing to do with it. I compartmentalize my life. That's what they would say to me. Yes, and that's know right. That that's, <laughs> and so your response to that would be what, Lance? You can't compartmental your life. It's what I have just said. I think, you know, tell me what the issues are. I tell you, if you haven't filed your, filed your tax returns, one day the IRS is going to come after you. And if you've got five years of unpaid taxes, you're probably going to go to jail. You're not going to be a very effective leader if that happens. And you're not going to be an effective leader if you worry about the day that when that happens. So why don't you get it done? 
And it's interesting, somebody of that level of wealth who hasn't taken care of that basic stuff. Absolutely. There's always, there's, I'm sure there's a story behind it. Uh, yes. Thank you for that, Lance. Now, you teach leaders in your space in Colorado to do, um, you know, high difficult runs in a very uh, quick period of time. Uh, what is sort of the purpose of, of this and how do you actually get people who to, to go to those levels so quickly? Well, here's how life typically moves. We learn how to ski. You're a skier, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yeah, and you've been skiing for how long? Uh, 30 years, a little right. bit longer probably, almost 40. What, how old were you uh, when you first learned to ski? 16. Yeah, and what did they teach you to begin with? What was the first thing they taught you? Well, the snowplow row. Yeah, no kidding. How yeah. to stop. What mm -hmm. other sport is there in the world where the first thing they teach you is how to stop doing the sport you're trying to learn? And so we start from there. And that snowplow thing is one of the anchors of skiers. And so what happens is when you were 16, you, you learned quickly, you got better very fast. By the time you were 20, you were probably really good. And mm -hmm. you, when did you peak? Uh, 24, 25, if, if that, because right. I didn't go a lot when I was busy doing some other things and traveling as much. Right. So that was probably my best. I was fit. I was, I had energy. Right. Uh, I could, my quads didn't burn like they do now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so now do you, do you ski at that level? 24 years old? No, I don't. I'm, no. I'm less than that. Yeah. So it's, it's a bell curve, isn't it? Mm. So. I bring skiers <clears throat> exactly like you, not necessarily as advanced skiers as you, as long as they can put their boots on and make a turn, I, I'll take them on. So uh, uh, somebody who can ski a green run, I'll take them on. And we will ski double black diamonds in one day. By the end of that day, everybody will be skiing double black diamond runs. Now we do this by showing people that what they think they know is not going to serve them. And if we go back to the snowplow, we stand at the top of a cliff. It's a thousand foot drop. It's very steep, 60 degrees or so. And we're going to ski down it. And the people are saying, oh, crap, I'm going to die. And I'm going to say, no, nobody's ever died. I've been doing this for 15 years. Nobody's going to die. Nobody ever has died. Nobody's even hurt themselves. But you have to make a commitment to me that you will not snowplow. Because if you snowplow down a thousand foot cliff, you're going to die. Mm. So before I teach you how to get down the, this journey, you have to make that commitment. And I won't take you down there until you make that commitment. So it's about letting go. It's about leaving the past behind, what you think you know and what you've become mm. an expert in. Because snow plowing is the most inefficient way to stop anyway, as most advanced skiers know. But when somebody says, okay, fine, I, I will promise not to do that. I'll say, okay, now I'll show you how to get down this cliff. And I teach them how to get down. And they get down to the bottom. And they say, that's the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me. I am skiing at a level that I haven't skied at in my whole life. And I'm doing it at the age of 55. And so then we go in to have a hot chocolate. We say, that's just a metaphor. That's what you're doing with your marriage. That's what you're doing with leadership. That's what you're doing in every other part of your life. It's a bell curve. We plateau. Think about what you know about leadership. You learned stuff 20, 30 years ago. Mm. A lot of that's obsolete now. 
You need to learn a new technique for the modern era and the times that we're in, and we can teach you that. So skiing and this metaphor of skiing black diamonds in one day is so powerful because it's visceral. I mean, it's not like a chalk and talk or a blackboard thing. This is something of a life experience that people experience, and they're so amazed that it can happen. They say, okay, I get it. I'm going to ski this way now for the rest of my life. Talk to me about leadership. So we can be inspired to go that quickly and shift if we choose to. Exactly. In the leadership realm. Exactly. And as being a good spouse or a good parent. Great. So, Lance, and I wanted to share that story. And listeners, think about that, what Lance is talking about. I'm even, I'm standing here, Lance, and I think double black diamond. Like I even have uh, doubts as I'm thinking about it. So I want to go to test this theory for myself, right? <laughs> is I want um, uh, I I appreciate everything that you shared here. And listeners, think about what Lance has said. There is so much information he's shared. You're going to have to listen to this episode over and over and over, or get the Bellwether Effect, that book that is available is available on Amazon. So uh, Lance, two things. First of all, um, how can people get a hold of you and your contact information, and then uh, a final word of wisdom from you. So well, if, if people are interested in your work or your books, how might they get a hold of that? Well, secretan.com uh, is one way, uh, S-E-C-R-E-T-A-N.com. And, of course, Amazon and Indigo carry all my books. Um, secretan.com forward slash ski is how you'd find details of the Double Black Diamond. We call it the Leadership Summit uh, program. And those are the two best ways to, to reach us. Of course, Google, you'll find me very easily. Oh, are you there? Yeah. Okay, sorry. Uh, yeah, no, I just lost you for a second. That's okay. We'll edit that out. So Lance, well, thank you for that, Lance. So I encourage all the listeners to go to secretan.com, S-E- S-E-C-R-E-T-A-N.com. And Lance, what's your final word of wisdom to our listeners today that you want to leave them with as it comes to development, to leadership, to really living a fulfilling and inspiring life? One of my most uh, favorite quotes is by a man called Robert Greenleaf who invented servant leadership. And his quote goes like this, Will what I'm about to say improve on the silence. I love that quote because it's so rich. And so what I would say as a final word is this, is what you're saying, doing, thinking, communicating, is it inspiring? Because in the end, everything we do needs to inspire another person. We do everything in life because we're inspired. Mm. Mm. Well, thank you, Lance, and thank you, Doctor, for hanging out with us today. It's been great to be with you, Ken. You've done your homework, and uh, you're a great interviewer. Thank you. <laughs> okay, thanks, Lance. And listeners, man, this is rich. Lance is one of my favorites, and so go back and listen to this episode over and over. Get his books. Uh, delve into this. He's really uh, being controversial with some of the stereotypical things that are out there around performance reviews and leadership and mission statements, et cetera, et cetera. So go there and shift into this new, be a, a double black diamond skier by next week. Go for it. Do it. And as we uh, wrap up the, uh, the end of most shows, 
we just ask you, if you like what we're doing, please share. Please uh, pass it on to your friends. Uh, leave us a rating in iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud in whatever way that you are listening to this. Uh, some comments. And if you have some guests that uh, you would love us to interview, let us know. Thank you for listening to Secrets of Success. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, I just finished interviewing Lance, our guest, Lance Secretan today. And Lance is a colleague. He was rated the number one leadership development professional globally by LEAD 500. He has a brand new book called The Bellwether Effect. He pretty well uh, pushes back on just about every HR strategy, leadership strategy that's out there right now and gives us new ways of thinking. This is amazingly rich, powerful episode. And so when we think about leadership, leadership applies to everybody. If you're leading at home as a family, if you want to improve your life, if you want to improve your business, if you want to improve your work situation, then today's episode is for you. And as we talk about in many of our other shows, is that we just thank you for sharing, passing on the secrets of success. And when Lance gets into the show, he talks about developing and knowing your gifts and talents. That's one of the things that CRG does as well as anybody is our tools and resources will help you to get clear about who you are. My latest book, The Quest for Purpose, will also help you and give you the, the, the steps, the roadmap to be able to become the person that you are destined to be, your destiny as Lance talks about it. So thank you for tuning in and here's today's show with Lance Secretan. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.